Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. It has been a while. It's been several months since our last recording. Um, Just to be honest, a lot of life got in the way, and also making a podcast is hard, and so it was easy not doing it. But we have more that we want to talk about, and you listeners have actually given me the motivation to pick this up again, just because I think since November, when the last episode was, we've actually increased our likes on Facebook by triple what we had before, and people keep asking me. We're going to keep doing it, and I've got a few donations, so I think now I technically am morally obligated to do it, So, and I want to. So, Well, what it shows is people are happier with us when we don't talk. That, that's kind of what I picked up. I mean, you know, if I try less, then I get more you know, likes from it. So, you know, there you go. Yeah, that's my experience, too. The less I talk, the more people like me. Fun stuff. All right, well, for this episode, we wanted to talk about a philosophical problem that touches on many, many parts of philosophy and has been kind of plaguing people since the beginning of time, almost. And that's called the mind-body problem. So, in its simplest form, the mind-body problem is basically that, well, if we have this thinking mind, and if it's free, and we have free will, then how is our mind affecting our physical body? How do they interact with one another? or can they? Um, And this especially becomes a problem if you believe in some sort of spirit or soul, because if a spirit or soul is not matter, then how on earth can it interact with matter or affect anything? From another aspect, in modern times, a lot of the scientific views, or what's called naturalism, which says, you know, everything we can explain through a, a natural means, A lot of proponents of that have said, well, we don't need this mind because everything can be explained on some chemical reaction or something from within our minds. And so we actually, everything is chemical and everything's natural and there is no actual mind and free will is an illusion. So mind-body problem, like I just mentioned, touches on many, many aspects. So we have, you know, free will is a big one because if we're just controlled by chemicals and bodies, then we're not necessarily, we're not technically free. Also, it touches on the spiritual aspect of, well, how can a spirit interact with a physical substance? Who knows? And a few other things we're going to talk about. So that's my understanding, and we're going to go into it a lot more. And obviously, I have my dad on here, and he's a lot more well-read on this. So this is going to be kind of an education for me, as hopefully for the listener. And we're just going to kind of go over the basic tenets of what are the main issues in the mind-body problem and whatever else we want to talk about, I guess. So what I'd like to do, I guess, is I want to drive home the mind-body problem and make it a real problem. And then I kind of want to outline the the requirements for having a mind-body solution that would be acceptable to a person who is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, formerly known as Mormons, and then look at whether or not that kind of a position could hold water. That is, is, is that a position that could possibly be true, given what we know. So that's kind of the outline of what I have in mind. Okay, and and that works for me. And like I said, before we've had books or papers to go off of, or I've made a concrete outline, but for this, we're going to kind of free will it. It'll basically be free will, like a will, not will, but we will talk about free will. But this will be kind of more of you tell me some stuff, and as questions arise in my mind, I'll just pop in with them. And listener, I apologize again. I'm not a professional philosopher, so I'm sure there's a lot of things I don't understand, and maybe I should bring up more opposing points had I more of an education. But the fact is, I'm doing this just to help my understanding, and hey, you know, my views are actually quite close to my dad's views. Fancy that, that my views would be close to someone who raised me. But So that's why I'm not way too far away from his views, but I still have questions and possibly disagreements. So anyway, go ahead. Sure. So here's the problem, not in a nutshell, but at least an introduction. The problem arises from this. If I hit you on the head hard, you're going to lose consciousness. There will be something different about you from when I hit you on the head, from before I hit you on the head, okay? 
And the fact that when I hit you in the head, it can affect your consciousness suggests there's something very physical about consciousness. I can give you drugs that will make you lose consciousness, change your consciousness, make it so that your brain functions differently. On the other hand, if I look closely at the brain trying to explain consciousness, you know, what is consciousness? Well, think of the color blue, if you will. Let's make this very simple. You have an image in your head. I'm not sure if anybody has the same image in their head as I have in my head, but I'm really sure I have an image in my head. And there's something what it's like to see blue. And this is not something that's out there in the world. It's actually a part of my consciousness to be aware of what this is. I'm conscious of having experienced blue, having memories of seeing blue, and all kinds of different shades of blue. And the shade of blue I choose to look at is purely what we would call a qualia, or a mental phenomenon. So I have consciousness, and there's a difference between being conscious and unconscious, and anybody who denied those facts you would think is crazy. There are actually people who do deny those facts. They're called eliminative materialists, supported by people like uh, Paul and Patricia Churchland and and, uh, other, who are neuroscientists and philosophers, by the way. They do neuroscience. And there are people who actually deny that there's such a thing as consciousness. And I'm like most philosophers. I just kind of roll my eyes in disbelief, thinking that anybody could actually accept that position. And, you know, this is a position that arose because they're saying, look, a lot of things we used to explain in terms of consciousness and non-material properties, we now explain differently. So, for instance, we used to explain when a person was crazy because they were possessed by a devil, and now we have all kinds of physiological explanations. And we even treat it physiologically. I I can give you all kinds of things that will control the norepinephrine and dopamine levels in your brain, and that will in some way affect whether or not you're depressed or you can concentrate or you have ADD all those kinds of things. So we have this this notion that there's something very physical about our consciousness, and yet it doesn't seem that we could fully explain consciousness by what's physical. So for instance, usually what happens in science is we explain properties through reducing what we have to its explanatory components. In the brain, the explanatory components are this. You have a body that reaches a long ways called an axon. And at the end of that, you have neurons which have branch-like fingers on them called dendrites. And you have billions of these in your brain. You have billions of dendrites, and the spaces in between the dendrites are called synapses. And what happens is there's a chemical that travels through the neurons, goes to the tip of the dendrites, and then gets released into the synaptic area. That is, there's this kind of space between the dendrites. And then the chemical makeup will determine whether or not the signal will get passed on to the circuit of the brain. And so virtually everything that happens is is explained in terms of neurons and these synapses. But the problem is a neuron doesn't have consciousness, and there's no consciousness in synapses. And so if we engage in a kind of reductive explanation of the kind that scientists want to engage in, we're a long ways from explaining anything that remotely approaches consciousness. And even looking at the brain as a whole, if I look at the operations in your brain, I'm not really seeing consciousness. All I'm doing is seeing electrical activity. But when I see electrical activity in my choo-choo train, I'm not seeing consciousness, and I'm not seeing it anymore when I'm looking at the brain. And so we have these different intuitions that arise from these basic phenomena. But the big problem I see regarding the mind-body problem is what we might call mental causation. So I have a thought, and I'm conscious, and I I make a choice, but it seems that my thought and my choices are not really extended like my body. That is, how much would it weigh, and how much space would it take? If it's occurring at some point in my brain, is it identical with my brain, or is it something over and above my brain? And those are things that I'll explore. But the bottom line is, how does that cause something to happen? How does it cause my arm to move? Well, I know somehow there's an electric signal that goes from my brain down to my arm and moves my my fingers, and I can fully explain the circuitry involved. What I can't explain is the consciousness and the choice that initiates that. Now, in current neuroscience, there have been a lot of experiments done that challenge basic ideas that we have about ourselves. Most of us, I'd say virtually all of us, except for limitative materialists, And if you're a limitative materialist like some of my friends, what you really are is simply a zombie. You don't have any thoughts. You would be exactly the same if you had no consciousness. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? What do they believe? Just that everything reduces down to material? Yeah, everything will be ultimately explained by basic scientific laws and operations of the brain. And there's nothing over and above the operations of the brain or the material reality of the brain to consciousness. 
And so you don't look beyond what's in the brain and scientific explanation in order to explain what's in the brain. And they, of course, they point to a long history of successes in the sciences in explaining what previously was explained by things like spirits and, and souls and things like that. The problem we have is that they make promises, you know, they're saying that someday science is actually going to be able to do this. But, you know, since people have, you know, like the Churchlands have actually begun to do their, their scientific work, and there are a number of limitative materialists, I don't mean to pick on them solely, but since they've begun their work and begun making promises about what's going to be explained, we seem to be getting further away from an explanation rather than closer to an explanation. The predictions that they make about what's going to be explained have not been fulfilled. And we're not any closer today than, than we were, uh, you know, two decades ago. And basically, they were making all these kinds of claims that really explaining what needs to be explained. I believe that eliminativism is, is self-refuting because a person has to be conscious in order to come up with kinds of arguments and be persuaded by them. That's a much larger argument. But eliminativism seems to be, a, to me at least, to be something that simply ignores what needs to be explained ignores all of the evidence that cries out for, for some kind of an explanation and really doesn't provide any explanation at all. That being said, you know, their experiments, I'll, I'll point to two kinds of experiments. You have experiments by Benjamin LeBay, or Libet, as most people call him. He hypothesized that there was this particular action in the brain that's been observed. He calls it a readiness potential. And he equates this readiness potential with somehow, you know, a thought or initiation of a thought. And his experiments show, you know, what he did is he sat people down and asked them to watch a clock and tell him when they made their decision. And it turns out that the decision to do a certain action, a very basic action, comes after the readiness potential is already fired. So it looks like the brain is acting unconsciously and the decision is actually made before a person becomes consciously aware of having made the decision. Now, virtually everything about this experiment is problematic, including the assumption that the readiness potential has anything to do with the decision or consciousness. It's been roundly criticized, and, and I would say that most people now writing, in fact, the vast majority of people now writing, reject the kinds of conclusions that LeBay initially, or Libet initially drew from his experiments, which was that what Libet actually hypothesized was that we make unconscious decisions, but there's this small amount of time after we become conscious that we can actually veto the, con the decision that was made unconsciously. I don't think anything like what Libet thought was taking place is actually taking place. That, of course, would be a very large discussion. There are literally hundreds of, of articles and uh, hundreds of books discussing the Libet experiments. There are other experiments by a guy named Wagner who did experiments about prefiguring what people would choose by essentially priming them, and then they would come up with a decision that they were unaware of the influences that primed them to come up with the decision that they did. But Wagner's experiments have been criticized even more. I mean, what we're looking at in terms of Wagner's experiments seems to me to be even less persuasive, but these experiments have had a very great influence on cognitive psychology and uh, philosophical neuroscience. At least for the past two decades, there's been, as you know, as I've said, there's been a lot of work on them. And I assume that you'll be posting this article that I sent you by Alfred Mealy, who basically explains what the experiments are and what the problems are. Yeah. The bigger problem is. If there's no room for consciousness, then our basic notions about how we make decisions about free will and the attendant moral responsibility that comes from making free decisions seem to be put in jeopardy. And so there's a real question, you know, about the relationship with free will. Now, I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about what I call the requirements for a mind-body solution that would allow for free will and moral responsibility and would be consistent with Mormonism or those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, at least people who believe in that kind of thing, and I'm one of them. So it seems to me that anyone who's going to accept a mind-body solution consistent with the commitments of those who believe basic tenets of Mormonism is going to have to believe that there is something that survives this body. That's not difficult for most Mormons because they believe in a spirit body that's still material. And so whatever material explanation could be given for consciousness could still be given, it would seem, for a spirit which has some form of spirit matter. 
even if we don't really know how spirit matter operates or what it is. Can we back up a little bit here? So just to kind of lead up to where like Joseph Smith's revelations were kind of revolutionary. So throughout a lot of, well, not a lot, but like at least in his day, like one of a dominant form would be something which was brought forth by the philosopher René Descartes. And he's famous for, you know, saying, I think, therefore I am. That's when he kind of reduced, he's like looking at his beliefs and he's like, well, I have to say all these are in doubt, but there's one thing I can't doubt. And it's that I am a mind at least, and I'm thinking thoughts. I know that's for sure. But anyway, he explored this a lot and he came up with what we now term Cartesian dualism, which says there's the body and, you know, physical substance. And then there's a different kind of substance, which is, you know, unseeable and completely on a different plane. And that's what he would call the, you know, the spirit or the soul. And so, at least as far as I understand, that's kind of like the dominant Christian view for the last, you know, few hundred years before Joseph Smith. And during his day, maybe they were playing around with other things because of science, but at least that was a dominant view. And so what is revolutionary, let me just read the actual passages, or I, I have another paper I was reading, and let me just read a couple quotes from it about how Joseph Smith kind of solved this problem of basically saying, no, there isn't a dualism. Terrell Givens actually has this term, he calls it a two-tiered monism. Monism is the idea, is there two substances, you know, spirit and matter, or is there just one substance? Mono, meaning one. Monism, he says, well, Mormons have two-tiered monism, meaning we have a spirit substance and a physical substance, and they're both matter, they're both like actual physical things, but they're on different levels, I guess. So let me read this quote. This is not from Terrell Givens, this is from another paper, which I'll cite on the blog as well. It says, the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith received revelation that is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 131 verses 7 through 8, and that will say, there is no such thing as immaterial matter, all spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure, and can only be discerned with purer eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. The author of the odd article says, These verses of Mormon scripture align with Churchland, who you mentioned. He did some work on the mind-broad problem, but he cites him early in the article. Anyway, this aligns with Churchland's speculations regarding substance dualism. Spirit is made of a pure, refined matter that cannot be seen or studied using today's scientific technology. The fact that we are not yet able to see this spiritual matter does not negate the possibility of its existence. We cannot see the particle that causes the force of gravity, for example, and yet we have evidence to, that leads us to believe that it is a reality. And the same is true, possibly, of the spirit. Anyway, he's arguing for that, obviously. Anyway, but that's kind of like, you know, the the birth of that idea is we, in Mormonism, Joseph Smith solved the problem by basically saying, well, they aren't two different things. They can interact because spirit is the same thing as physical matter. It's just a, a more pure form of it, and therefore they interact, therefore zero problem exists. I just don't think that's viable. And the reason I don't think it's viable is that spirit matter must be very different from regular matter. I mean, we can't detect it for one thing. The second thing is, when people die, the spirit matter would seem to leave their body if that's the way they're, and that seems to be the mental picture they have. Can't be detected, can't be weighed, has no real extension. There doesn't seem to be any matter to it at all in terms of how we actually define matter. So we have what we call matter one, which we run into in physics, and matter two, which can't be detected by any scientific means. Now, matter two turns out to have the same characteristics is what we call spirit it turns out because it's it's a thinking kind of matter it's still sentient it has life and so if i ask what's the difference between spirit as classically defined and matter two which is the spirit matter i'm not sure i could really make a big distinction except for the fact that i call it matter i don't know what the continuity is there's not enough there and that observation by joseph smith that found its way into dnc 130 to really give me any idea as to how this works to solve the mind-body problem. Indeed, I would say it's reaching way beyond where we're justified in going. We can say basically that there is a requirement for this kind of matter. It has to be able to survive apart from the physical body. It has to have the capacity for thought. And I don't know if it's life in, in the sense that we, we call life. Life is kind of a cellular process. 
but it has characteristics of, of dynamic experience and interaction with others. And so what we have is something that has to be able to exist apart from the body that has consciousness. And you haven't explained consciousness by merely referring to one by, to a different sort of matter. You still have the same problem. How is it that this matter gives rise to consciousness? Because every form of matter we know, when we break it down in terms of scientific thought, that is a type of reductivism, we can't explain consciousness. Consciousness isn't found in the parts. It's not found in the interaction of the parts. And we haven't come up with even a remote explanation for how, or you know, even what consciousness is in terms of the scientific method. So you're saying basically that Joseph Smith just tw- puts at least that statement and the interpretation in our modern times isn't because like that's what I was reading the article is just like oh solve the problem mind body problem done Mormonism has this view and we're good so you're saying it doesn't it just takes it a step back but it's still the exact same problem because well if you have a spirit body it still doesn't solve the problem of well how does your mind then interact with that spirit body or any matter. Yeah, and it adds the problem that you have no clue what the properties of, of spirit matter actually are. I can tell you what the properties of the brain are. I, I have a, you know, I've, I've done a lot of study in, in neuroscience and cognitive psychology, and I have a pretty good idea of the interactions of the brain. I, you know, explained it in terms of neuronal interaction and, you know, how synapses communicate information. And I can tell you the different areas of the brain and how they relate. And for instance, I can tell you that if you get injured in an accident and broke his area right behind your right ear, gets injured, that you're going to lose, you've got a, a, a good chance of losing the ability to speak, and that if you're a man, you have a lot less chance of recovering speech than if you're a woman, for various reasons, precisely because the corpus callosum in the female brain is generally quite a bit larger than the corpus callosum in the male brain. The corpus callosum is the body that joins the two hemispheres together, and so women's brains actually have two hemispheres that are talking to each other, and men have a harder time at that. There are benefits and deficiencies for both of them, but I mean, the bottom line is, is that I can explain to you how the material that I'm familiar with in physics operates. I just compound the problem if I say, well, spirit matter has these properties. I don't know what the properties of spirit matter are. I couldn't explain consciousness in terms of actual matter. How does it solve the problem by referring the problem to spirit matter? Well, then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I, I mean, that's how most Mormons solve the problem. So I guess, you know, and we also have this idea called an intelligence, and we've talked about that in the past of various views of that, but at least the view that you seem to agree with was that some sort of part of us was eternal and conscious, and I think you referred to it like possibly as like some, or at least similar to a magnetic field where there's something. On a couple of theories of the intelligence, the intelligence is more primitive and simple than the spirit body. The spirit body seems to be a composed or organized body made of spirit matter. Intelligences, I'm not sure if there's a description of intelligences as matter per se, but the intelligent part, the thinking part, seems to be what we're discussing, and that's the intelligence itself. At least that's the way Joseph Smith expressed it. And I'm not sure if an intelligence is extended like matter that we know or not, or whether it's made of spirit matter. All we know is that it's intelligent. It has consciousness. It has the ability to think, has the ability to reason, and so forth. And so it's, it's much more like a, a classical mind in terms of Plato or Descartes than it is in, in terms of a, a spirit body. And as I said, merely referring to a spirit body doesn't explain consciousness because you haven't explained consciousness in terms of a physical body. If you had a full explanation in terms of a physical body, you'd be a lot closer, perhaps, to saying I can have the same kind of an explanation if I refer to a spirit body. But where we have a failure to give an explanation with a physical body, it doesn't put us any further ahead to say, well, there's a spirit body, and that solves the problem. Because it doesn't even remotely begin to solve the problem. It just adds additional problems. Okay, yeah, it just puts it back a step. So, and a way to think about it is, for example, obviously, at least the way I understand the basic scientific view is that, well, I guess it doesn't say this exactly, but, you know, it's we can compare it to, you know, when you're a child, obviously your consciousness is a lot less capable of when you're older, and so obviously it does rely somewhat on your physical body, and therefore saying, you know, just a spirit is in it, why would that, you know, then that's weird because you think that we'd automatically, when you're growing up and you hear these things in church, you kind of picture like you have 
like another body just enters your body and you're just kind of controlling your body like it's a body suit or like a puppet or this guy in a robot suit or something. You know, like on Men in Black when you open up that guy's face and there's that little alien in there. You know, I think a lot of Mormons kind of picture things like that, but I, I don't think that that is very true of the way the body actually works because like you said, you change some chemical balances and you can drastically alter someone's personality. I I was watching this video and it just showed when people first started experimenting with this, The there was this guy and he was this, you know, happy, very productive, hardworking citizen. And then there was a some farming accident. He had a pole go through his eye. And after that, he was kind of a jerk and he was very short tempered and not nice at all. I'm like, well, you know, if it's affecting what at least traditionally we call the mind, you know, like personality is affected that much by your brain, then maybe it is just all in your brain. The classical view is that you had this little homunculus in you. The homunculus is a little guy, like you said, in Man in Black. And that's the really thinking part of you. But then you've got to explain how the homunculus thinks as well. It just, as you said, moves it back once. We have the basic problems of that arise. They're really not solved by moving them back. So I don't think that Mormonism can begin by saying or just assume we've explained this. And eliminative materialism certainly hasn't begun to explain consciousness. It's just more, it's explained it away rather than explained it. You know, but there's no question but that our ability to think, our, our basic consciousness can be affected by chemicals, by being hit physically in the head and so forth. I mean, these are just basic facts. And so that there is some relationship between the physical and the mental is simply undeniable. I mean, take a very simple experiment that, the best thing you can do for depression, for instance, is just sit and smile at yourself in the mirror. I mean, there's this mind-body connection that's very powerful. Why that would work, you know, who knows? But basically what it does is engages certain areas of the brain that releases endorphins when you smile. Why it does that, we don't know, but you make a decision to smile. What is it that's deciding to smile? Well, one would think you've made a conscious decision to smile at yourself in the mirror because it's a weird thing to do. Basically, the, the problem of consciousness, this is what we call the hard problem of consciousness. How do we explain the fact that we have this mental image of blue or that I have a plan in my head that I then bring about or that I have this idea that I'm going to smile at myself and then it changes my body? This is called the problem of downward causation. So how is it that my thoughts or my conscious decisions would affect anything physical because my thoughts don't seem to be physical things? They seem to be more or less in a, in a different level of explanation. You know, the bottom line with, with that is that what Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness isn't solved by simply referring to spirit matter and a spirit body. And, you know, when I find people who think that that's the solution and they don't need to go any further, I don't think they fully understand what the mind-body problem is. All right, well, if you want to kind of now move into how do we come at this then from a solution, because I don't think, and I would include myself in that, that any most Mormons have thought beyond that solution as, A, I you know, didn't recognize that problem, I guess, before reading about it more, and I'm not sure what else can be said to solve it. These are the things that, a Mormon view, and in fact, I think most people have these basic commitments as just a part of their basic experience. And, and, you know, you could say they assume that this is the case, but I would go further and say they actually experience this to be the case. We sometimes make free decisions. Sometimes we deliberate about things and then make choices. And we make choices based upon our deliberations. Sometimes we make choices that have moral import. That is, we're morally accountable for what we do. And it seems that if I can't do other than what I'm doing, there's no way to hold me morally accountable. Because we hold me morally accountable only for things I can, in fact, bring about or do, and that are genuinely open to me to do. So there's a very strong connection between our sense of morality and moral accountability. And I don't think many people are willing to give up a sense of moral accountability. To simply say there's no real moral responsibility in the world the way the limit of this Say there's no real consciousness in the world, this isn't an explanation of what needs to be explained. It's simply denying what the most basic experience of what it is to be human. And by the way, very little of human experience can actually be explained in terms of science, per se. Very little of our experience is replicable or controllable, testable, measurable. Most human experience is not scientifically investigatable in that sense. 
So in terms of hard sciences and, and hard control, where we could have that kind of a scientific outcome, most of our experience isn't even going to come within the scope of what is testable by science. That doesn't mean that the vast part of our experience is unreal. It just means that science has its limitations. In other words, that we shouldn't assume scientism, that science explains virtually everything, because it doesn't. So it seems that these are the requirements. Any Mormon view of a solution to the mind-body problem has to give an explanation that preserves free will, that it preserves moral accountability, and that preserves the ability of the individual to survive death, at the very least. And so if the view can't possibly do that, then it's not a view that's consistent with the LDS view of what we are. And so, you know, what kind of view would do that? Can I ask one more question before you go on to that? I, or I, I just a statement. I, I think also we have an extra layer of things to solve in the LDS view because we also posit a pre-existent self, whereas I think most Christians are like, you know, I guess, you know, we're more in line with science because we're created with our body. And if there is a spirit or soul, it emerges with our body and doesn't exist beyond it. But we say we had consciousness before we had a body and we will have it after, but it gives another layer to the problem, I'd say. Yeah, I, I would say that whatever survives death is also something that existed before we became babies. Now, keep in mind, we also have to believe that with an undeveloped brain, we're not real great at consciousness, making free choices, being rational, and things like that, because babies aren't. And so it would seem that we lost capacities when we came into a body because we had to learn in some way to master our bodies, to interact or work with our bodies, in order to function as fully functional people. And so I, I believe you're right there. I think there is something in addition. It's another thing that has to be explained and, or how it could be. And let me walk through at least a position, and you can link to this. I've sent it to you. It's called Agent Causal Libertarianism. And so we've already discussed this view when we discussed my first volume, and I've given a defense of this view. Here's a very basic word picture that may assist people to get into this view. If you have a magnet and you stick it in a certain place, you create a magnetic field and it will gather bits of iron and so forth like all magnets do. What most people don't know is that when you remove the magnet, the magnetic field remains and you can still gather iron even though the physical magnet is no longer there. The properties of the magnetic field remain. Moreover, you can take this magnetic field and with the bits of iron create another magnet. <laughs> okay. So you have this basic way of interacting where the magnetic field both arises from and also gives rise to a magnet. So the magnetic field emerges from the properties of a magnet. And it's really hard to get behind magnetism. I mean, we could reduce it in terms of, okay, what are the subatomic particles that are at work? But basically, we have a very basic force called magnetism. And you can't really get behind it because it's a very basic force. I would say the mind is like the most basic thing. So in terms of scientific explanation, you use this kind of reductive explanation until you get to the very bottom of things. So, for instance, so to give an example, we used to think, you know, when we were Greek philosophers, that what we had were individual bits of matter called atoms from the Greek atome, which meant not dividable or you can't cut it apart. So the smallest things that there could be were atoms. We then learned that atoms were made of neutrons, protons, and electrons. And we thought they were the smallest bits of matter. And then we discovered there were things like quarks. And then we discovered that there were photons and things like that. And so we discovered all these various subatomic particles. Not atomic particles, but subatomic. We haven't, and I don't know that we can address the problem, but we have these basic forces in the universe. The strong force, the weak force gravity, magnetism, and when we explain things, we explain things in these basic forces, and you can't go beneath those. I would argue that we run into the same kind of explanatory stopping point when we get to consciousness. There is a basic consciousness. We explain consciousness in terms of a functioning brain, but consciousness doesn't seem to be reducible to a, a brain. It seems to be something that is independent. So I adopt a view called emergentism. And this magnetic field is a perfect example of it. The magnetic field arises from the magnet, and it can endure and exist separate from the magnet. 
on the other hand, the magnetic field can also create another magnet, <laughs> okay? And so it's actually an organizational principle that can bring bits of metal together. And so what we have here is something that emerges from, arises from a physical substrate or reality that can exist independently of it and then can also give rise to a basic underlying physical reality. And so if we're talking about an intelligence or basic human mind, in terms of emergentism, that's how I would think of the human mind if we want to talk about an eternal entity. Obviously, it's an analogy. And emergence is actually observed in the brain. The brain, when it's at rest, is what we would call a chaotic system. The neurons are firing in a chaotic, and chaos is an actual science of mathematics. It's observable in many ways in nature. All you've got to do, you watch the water going down the drain, and you watch it organize into a funnel. At first, the water going down the drain is simply chaotic, and then as it goes down the drain, it organizes itself into a funnel, which is a more efficient way of getting the water down the drain. Okay? It organizes itself that way. Similarly, when the brain engages in perception, the neuron, we'll call it neurons firing, that also is a metaphor because it's actually transmission of, of chemicals and communication. But the neurons are firing, and they begin to fire in recognizable patterns that are describable in terms of a different type of mathematics. And so we watch this kind of self-organization, and that's the key here, this kind of self-organization that takes place in the brain when we actually engage in perception. We can see the same thing in various parts of the brain when it begins to engage in intentional conduct when we ask people to make a decision. Parts of the brain go from this chaotic neuronal activity to a more organized, self-organizing activity. A number of scientists have described the brain as a self-organizing system. And so what we have here, the underlying mathematics of what we have is the chaotic self-organizing system. I would argue that consciousness arises from this self-initiating, self-organizing ability that we have. Over time, we learn how to organize our brain. If you watch a baby, a baby's arms flail around. They don't have control over them. After a while, they learn how to control their arms. And then they don't have to think about it anymore. It's like when you first learn to drive a car, you have to think about everything you're doing. After a while, you can file that in unconscious activity. You don't even have to think about it. You just do it because you've done it so much. And then you get what we call body memory. And so a lot of what is at first conscious becomes unconscious because we've just relegated it to body memory. Controlling our arms is like that. Your arms are not just flailing around like a baby's arms. But I watched you when you were a baby. They were flailing around. And it was an amazing thing to watch you gain control over your body. We learn the same thing with our brains. We learn how to organize our brains and the patterns of neuronal firing in our brains in order to bring about certain results. But what is it that initiates this self-organization? You'd say, well, maybe it's just a property of the brain that it self-organizes, but it doesn't seem to be that way. It seems to be something that is a result of our conscious decisions. In other words, consciousness seems to be the result of and also the cause of this self-organization, just the way that a magnetic field is the result of and also a cause of a magnet. Well, not the same. I mean, it's a, obviously an analogy, but it's a good analogy. Here's what I submit is necessary, and I'm just going to walk through what I take to be the concomitants that we would have to accept in order for us to reach the promised land that would explain the kinds of things that we're talking about. We need an independently existing reality that's self-organizing. We need free will and moral responsibility. So what's required initially is neuronal indeterminism. That is, at the level of neuronal activity, the chaotic activity of the neurons is, in fact, indeterministic and self-organizing. So that's the beginning point. It's not subject to a strict determinism. And chemistry is strictly deterministic. But the chemistry of the brain is, I'm going to use a real word here, there has to be a kind of stochasticity. That means it has to be something that's explained in certain kinds of mathematical formulas that are truly indeterministic. And so physical indeterminism seems to be a fundamental property of not only the brain, but of the consciousness giving rise to the patterns in the brain. The next thing that seems to me that we would have to accept is downward causation. That is. It has to be the case that my choices and decisions can affect what happens in the world. 
there's a view, and if you're uh, an eliminativist, it's the view that you hold, that your consciousness, your decisions, and everything in, in your mental life is merely epiphenomenal. That is, it arises from, it doesn't have any effect on your body or, or anything in the world. It's just there, it sits on top of it. And so your consciousness sits on top of this causal system, but you have no control over it. You don't affect it. It just gives rise to it. And then it gives rise to the illusion that somehow it's really you and your consciousness making these decisions. Just why it would do that and why that would evolve has to remain a mystery. I don't believe that it's remotely what happens, but that is a position that, that it seems to me has to be accepted by the pure materialist or the person who adopts in scientism. You know, science explains everything. But that's not the way I think the real world works. I think the next commitment that a person has to have is that you have to have an irreducible agent. That is, we explain decisions and moral responsibility not at the level of the activity of neurons or of the chemical transfers between dendrites in, in synapses. I hold a person accountable morally. Persons make decisions. And so what we're dealing with is a systemic decision, and, and we're explaining things at a different level. So I think that trying to reduce explanations of consciousness to brain activity is a category mistake. I think what we're dealing with is a system-wide type of explanation and something that we can't explain without engaging the entire person in their situation. And I don't limit consciousness just to the body because consciousness is actually an interaction with our environment. And our consciousness is not merely in our brain, it's in our entire central nervous system as it interacts with and is located in our surroundings as well. And so I think those are the commitments that are necessary to accept in order to have a view that will work for a Mormon mind-body problem. Now, obviously, there's a lot of unpacking to be done there on every single explanation or basically analogy or simile or, you know, metaphor or word picture that I've given you. But I believe that the unpacking can be done in a way that is quite persuasive. But I think it's important to get out there that these are the basic commitments that are necessary, at least as I see it. Now, obviously, there will be those who disagree with me, but I think the view that I put forward is quite defensible. All right, well, let me, as I was researching this, a question came up or that people were also asking. So if there is this agent, that it, there's a thing called two-way active powers, which is just basically in in any given situation, like you, you gave these analogies of like, there's a guy in a gas station and he sees a candy bar and he has an urge to get a candy bar, but doesn't have money. So he thinks about maybe stealing the candy bar. And so you're saying, you know, if agent causal libertarianism is true, which is a form of free will, that means that he can have both of the th options of steal the candy bar or don't steal the candy bar are both able to be chosen by him and he chooses which one actuates himself rather than it already, you know, his body has decided for him or something like that. Right. What we can say is holding everything in the prior history of the world the same and the causal laws and laws of nature the same up to the time of the decision, he still has a choice as to whether he steals the candy bar or doesn't steal the candy bar. In other words, it's not in the cards before he got to the choice, and only in that way could he be morally accountable for stealing the candy bar. Yeah. I guess just to, this isn't my question, but to further explain that just for the listeners, so... Because it comes from the idea of, you know, I mean, you wouldn't say it's just random but, and, you know, things have a cause. And so it's like, well, if, if, you know, the reason he's in the candy bar is this big chain of causation back to the birth of the universe to as to why this decision is influenced the way it is to be made. But it, an agent causal libertarian is saying, well, in light of all of those things, he can be influenced, but he still has the choice and can actually make a different choice. There might be a higher probability for one than the other based on, you know, the way he's raised, his belief systems that he was taught and all that, but he still can make a different choice. Exactly. And so basically what we're saying is the world is not fully deterministic. There is a bit of leeway that is created by the agent itself in the interaction with the environment that it is in. This is a, a key aspect of what it is to be a human being that's morally accountable and to act freely. This isn't a new kind of argument. I mean, I've argued for this in no less than three volumes of, you know, in books. And so some of these ideas like agent causal libertarianism won't be new. What will be new 
is the notion of downward causation in its relation to a conscious being making those decisions and how does that relate to the physical human being that we are so now we're bringing in a different level of problem that is to be explained how are we in the real world and how do we interact in the real world and is this really something that's feasible in a scientific age now let me add another thing and that is you know a lot of people have near death experiences and i take these near death experiences seriously the kind of consistency on things that aren't even recognized has persuaded me that they ought to be taken seriously. I don't pretend to know the ultimate veracity of each of the accounts. I, I doubt that some accounts are actually veridical. Some are made up. Some are just, you know, sheer exploitation and, and trying to get attention. But I believe that they're, the vast majority of what people are telling us are actual experiences that they had. And I'm strongly open, instead of merely open, to the possibility that there are actual experiences in, that they have and, and not just delusions that they're experiencing in death. If that's the case, and you know, when they have these experiences, they notice that there's still a person existing apart from their body. And many of them, they even look down at their bodies and they realize they're still conscious. They're still them, in a sense. And they're thinking, they're experiencing apart from a body. So for that kind of thing to be true, we would have to have something that can exist independently as well of the physical body. But that's no less true of Mormonism. There has to be something that can exist independently of the physical body that we know. And as we've discussed, merely referring it to a spirit body doesn't really resolve the problem of consciousness and the mind-body problem that we've been discussing. Right. So I, the, the question was this, because I was just looking at different... And, and in fact, the the author of that paper that you sent me, I was looked up some presentation that she gave that wasn't exactly the same subject, but was very, very closely related. Her view is called emergent dualism, though, so I, I don't think she's still, like, believes in a spirit or a soul or anything like that. And so she explains it like this. She said, well, let's say there is a conscious self and it is distinct from its body. It can affect its body intentionally, but it emerges from the body, but naturally, and it is dependent on the body throughout life. So the question is basically like, well, why couldn't it be that a human being is a purely physical object, albeit organized in very interesting ways, but it, it does so and it gives rise to consciousness, which can have this two-way active power or the power of choice? Why, why couldn't consciousness arise or emerge? I think we would say that, and I think we would say that mind arises in relation to the spirit body in the same or similar way that it rises to the physical body. In other words, merely referring to the spirit body doesn't resolve the problem, but explaining how mind could arise from the physical body gives us the possibility of explaining, well, this could happen in relation to a spirit body as well that could exist apart from the physical body and could have experiences of very different kinds of things because the scope of the substrate or underlying reality giving rise to it from which it emerges is different. And so it's precisely the kind of thing we're looking for that would explain basically the eternal soul or intelligence in Mormonism. Well, that's maybe I'm just not understanding. Maybe you've already solved it. But so that's where this problem comes in for me. So if we're claiming consciousness of some level or intelligence, maybe I'm conflating those two terms. But if that's eternal, then it can't necessarily, it can't by necessity be emergent. It has to be self-sustaining or that's the way it is. Like consciousness has to be a thing that is without emerging from anything else. No, what we would say is that there is an eternal reality that's always interacting with an eternal environment of some sort. And that in this interaction in the environment, it emerges from a basic reality, interacts in a basic reality. So remember, the magnetic fields can self-organize a new magnet just as it was organized by a magnet. So it's not only two-way, it, it, it's reversible. So it's like this. If you've got a pole holding up a, you know, a tent, if the pole disappears, the tent falls down, there's no tent. That's not really emergence, but if there's something dependent on something else without what it's dependent on, it can't exist. It's not the case that the mind is solely dependent on the physical body. It is dependent on something eternal. Is the something eternal matter the way we think of it? The answer is no. Well, what is it? And the answer is, well, maybe some form of spirit matter. And so now what we need is a, a substrate 
from which a reality of organization and thought. So the, the thought is a way of processing and self-organizing basic matter in this scenario. And so what we have is self-organizing matter that's eternal. But it's a two-way street. The matter is organized by the mind, and the mind is organized by the matter. And so this is an eternal interaction between matter and mind. They are always together, but the forms that the material can take can always be different. The mind, however, that gives rise to it, it, it may grow as well. The capacities of that mind may grow, or they, in some iterations, it may remain the same despite the underlying substrate. In fact, we know that even if the underlying substrate can, changes, the thought and what emerges can remain the same. So, for instance, if certain areas of the brain get injured, other areas of the brain will take over that function, including the ability to think and remember. Different memory pathways and so forth will be created. And so the brain will function and, and you know, its underlying function will be different. The memories and the experience will largely remain the same. And so it's a two-way interaction, and the, what the underlying substrate is doesn't have to remain the same throughout in order for consciousness to arise. So what we're positing here is this eternal dynamic between organizing and being organized by, and they both exist together for all eternity. Think of it in terms of a binary star. That their gravity, they orbit around each other. They need each other to remain where they are. Neither one of them is existing independently, but they're in a gravitational field in which they're both caught up, and they give rise to the gravitational field and change it. And so there are a lot of different metaphors that I can use. I'm obviously not explaining at the level of actual matter producing consciousness or from which consciousness arises. I don't believe matter does produce consciousness. I believe that there is this dynamic interaction from which consciousness emerges and that the dynamic interaction is a result of consciousness organizing the matter the way that it does. So that's what I'm positing. And it seems to me that the kind of emergence that I'm proposing is a unique Mormon form of emergence, but it seems to be the kind of thing that's required to have a responsible and immortal kind of a, of a being that would be acceptable to Christians, Muslims, Jews, and who accept an afterlife. A lot of Jews don't. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. Well, let me ask you, I don't know exactly how to ask this question, but I think there's something here that you could probably understand more what the problem is than what is just coming into my mind. But so this kind of relates to how the Pratt's kind of viewed things. So they viewed like everything kind of all material was one intelligence and then, you know, there was individuated afterwards from that. So how do you, in in your mind, explain why, like, because you, know, you believe in eternal individual intelligences, but we have bodies that are the limit of our minds, but without this physical, actual limited space area, what's why would there be limited or individuated instances of consciousness rather than just one large consciousness that maybe individuates later? Well, I've actually said that consciousness is not limited to the body. It extends out into the environment that interacts with the body. That's a view that's not unusual. It's, it's held by a number of people. And the Prats were actually panpsychists. They broke reality down to basic atoms. And these atoms were all conscious. They were like Leibniz's little monads that had windows in them. And so the Pratts were very classical monadists or atomists, but they were also panpsychists. That is, consciousness is simply a property of matter itself. It doesn't have to be organized in any particular way. It simply arises from matter. I would suggest that the simple observation that rocks aren't conscious is enough to cast doubt upon that view. But... The fact that you need an organized brain that is functioning in a certain way to have consciousness would tend to suggest that there is a form of panpsychism that is true. That is, consciousness is inherent in matter organized and functioning in certain ways and interacting in certain ways. And so it seems to me that there is some truth to this panpsychist view that was held by the Pratts. And they held a view that was what I would call a process view. The totality of the consciousness of matter constituted the intelligence which gave rise to all intelligence. And so they had this overarching intelligence, which was basically a shared consciousness of all of these atoms. I don't know that that view is mutually exclusive of what I have just suggested. It may well be 
that there is a kind of shared consciousness of all conscious beings, or there may be beings who share conscious with all conscious beings. Certainly, if we believe that God is omniscient and aware of everything that is, he's aware of the thoughts and minds of every individual and thus includes their consciousness within his consciousness. I think you're explaining it, but it's like if we aren't constrained by the physical borders, where does one mind end and one mind begin? And, and why would it have to be that way, I guess, is kind of what I'm asking. Like, why don't they just blend in with each other at times? And what is this border in your view, if you thought about that part? I'm just going to make some weird observations. I think one of the things we gain in mortality is the ability to hide, you know, like Adam and Eve. We gain the ability to dissemble and lie and keep secrets and hide from each other, an ability that I would bet that a spirit or a person who communicates mind to mind telepathically doesn't have. And so what we have is an ability to have privacy, mental privacy here, and the best thing about this ability is our ability to lie to ourselves and delude ourselves in self-deception. But, you know, this is a, an amazing thing about mortality. So for us in this physical state, we lack abilities that those in a spirit state would have. In other words, all spirits would communicate telepathically, and there's no mental privacy. There aren't lies. There's no dissembling. Everybody is simply transparent. And it would seem to be one of the concomitants. I mean, I've explained it this way in a, you know, fire on the horizon. The one of the amazing realities of our human existence is simply the ability to hide ourselves and pretend that God is not in our world, and the ability to hide ourselves from each other. This is essential to being immortal, and this ability to hide is given to us by the physical body that we have. What we can't sense with our five senses is not within the scope of our consciousness while we're in this mortal body, it would seem, with some exceptions. Obviously, people have spiritual experiences. I mean, I'd make the observation we still have the same eternal intelligence and spirit bodies and or that we had before becoming mortal. And there are times when that breaks through. When our mortal body becomes weak in comparison to the spiritual, we become more spiritually attuned. I think that's the purpose of fasting for a lot of people. I've experienced it in different ways. But it seems to be that spiritual communication overcomes the limits of a human body that is limited to the five senses that we have. And imagine what it's like to be a person who's deaf, dumb, and blind and interacting with the world. That's what we are. We're deaf, dumb, and blind compared to a spirit in a lot of ways, I suggest. So consciousness can be much wider than just this body, but it seems to me that mortality is set up so that one of the gifts we get when we become mortal is this ability to hide, dissemble, and lie. And I say this as a gift. It is. It gives us the opportunity to really reveal who we really are in a way that we couldn't if everything we did were transparent. It's the rings of Gaiji's, okay, <laughs> in Plato. Well, I, I mean, I guess that for the most part answers it, but I'm, I guess still I'm just... I'm honing in on myself, some whatever that means, existing, individuated for eternity. I'm just saying, if it emerges the way you're saying, I'm just saying, even if we take what you're saying about like telepathy and stuff, like, does that not make one large mind then? Or like, where does, where do I begin and someone else ends? And therefore, would it be a correct statement to say that I, as an individual, existed forever? Or what does me even mean if I'm connected with everyone else without, you know, any borders or anything like that? Oh, this is a very deep philosophical discussion, but remember the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are described as being in one another. And what one knows, the others know. What one does, the others do. And so ultimately, our goal is to overcome this kind of selfish self-limitation that we have and to be able to merge. But, you know, and this is a much larger discussion. We've already been to this for an hour and eight minutes. Probably not the best place to get into it, but short answer to a very long and involved question is that in order to get there, we have to build the ability to trust. In other words, if I have the secrets to the atomic bomb and you can read my mind, I'm in real trouble. But if I can hide it from you and I only give it to people I can trust, I can control what happens with the atomic bomb a lot easier. Ultimately, it may get out if I can't trust people enough. But imagine what it would be like to share all the power available in the universe with someone. I'm going to have to trust them a whole lot. So that's the short answer. All right. Well, 
I'll have a lot of different references to look in on because, like, like I said, this is one of the bigger problems in all philosophy, and it touches on a lot of other things that are, you know, you can go off into the weeds in several directions from here. So I'll put a lot of links, and if you're interested, you can get into those. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.